Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show, we're going to be recapping some of the best clips from our last 10 episodes of Wealth of Knowledge. Before we get to them, however, I would like to note that this will be the last Wealth of Knowledge episode for season one, and we'll be taking a break over the summer. I've had a great time starting this podcast and recording these first 32 episodes, and can't wait to continue in the fall. In the time off, we're going to look to make as many improvements to the show as we can, and we'll be bringing some even better financial conversations to you in just a few months. So thank you for listening, talking to me about the show, and we will be back better than ever in the fall. All right, let's get to it. As a reminder, all of these clips come from longer episodes, so if you want to learn more about a particular topic, check out the full episodes on Wealth of Knowledge from wherever you listen to the show. So let's get started. In this first clip, you'll hear U.S. News real estate editor Devin Thorsby as we discuss the U.S. News 2019 Best Places to Live rankings. Now, asking you specifically, looking at at your opinion as an expert real estate editor, what are some of your dark horses for best places to live? I mean, no one thinks that Austin is a best-kept secret at this point, so what are a few (laughs) cities from this ranking that you think are the next big thing? Maybe some cities that are slowly you know, climbing the rankings or some that you think will very soon? Yeah. Um, A lot of those dark horses that I see are in middle America, just because there's a lot of potential there because people love that affordability factor. And no matter what, people are always looking for a way to spend a little bit less on something that they absolutely need to have, uh, which is shelter. One dark, I consider it a dark horse, always highly ranked, I believe always in the top 25 in the last four years that we've had best places to live, um, but kind of falls under the radar a little bit, is Grand Rapids, Michigan. I will give the disclaimer. This is such a homer pick, I can't even believe. That I am from okay. Michigan, but I'm not from Grand Rapids, personally. <laughs> um, but Grand Rapids uh, is extremely affordable, has a high quality of life, um, and it's been so highly ranked in the last few years, it just kind of falls under the radar compared to the likes of Austin or San Francisco, something like that. Um, it is a, a smaller metro area, um, and it is located on the west side of the state. So even in Michigan itself, a lot of people don't necessarily pay that much attention to it all the time. But it's considered, you know, it's got all the qualities that a lot of people are looking for. Um, another one I would consider, Huntsville, Alabama. It's a very small metro area. This is only uh, the second year that it's been on the best places to live list, Uh, less than half a million people. Uh, But it's got a NASA center there and a flourishing aerospace industry. So that might might not be a name that people think of when they think I'm going to go into aerospace engineering um, when they're in college. But uh, that could be a place you end up and, you know, it's got all the... uh, the markings of a great place to live. Looking back on the top 10, number 10, Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina, number nine, Seattle, Washington, number eight, Portland, Oregon, seven, San Francisco, California, six, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, five, Des Moines, Iowa, six, Fayetteville, Arkansas, excuse me, four, (laughs) Fayetteville, Arkansas, three, Colorado Springs, Colorado, to Denver, Colorado, and the number one city for the third year running, Austin, Texas. U.S. News credit card expert Beverly Harzog and U.S. News senior editor for personal finance, Susanna Snyder, on how to improve your financial literacy. 
I think a, a recent common complaint is to blame the school system now at various levels. More and more I'll see tweets or memes making fun of the fact that we learned uh, how to play the recorder in school but not how to file taxes or establish good credit. So there's this open debate now about mandating financial literacy classes in school. So I ask you, both of you, what are your thoughts on the best place to improve financial literacy? Is this something we should be mandating in, in high school? Should it should it be viewed as an optional course to take in college? Is it something employers should be offering more and more? What are your two opinions on that? Beverly, do you want to go first on this one? Sure. You know, this is a great question. And I see those tweets, too, about the <laughs> <laughs> about learning the recorder but not knowing how to you know, balance your checking account. Um, you know, I don't think that getting into a place of blame is very productive here. So, um, you know, when I see that... Um, at this point, it doesn't really matter how we got where we are. We are where we are. So I would say that, you know, in high school, certainly they should be learning personal finance. My daughter took a class in personal finance in high school, but not all high schools offer that. And of course, since I'm a, uh, you know, a credit nerd, <laughs> you know, I insisted that my kids take that. Uh, so I think starting in high school is great in, in terms of outside influence, but Parents need to take that upon themselves, too, to try to teach their kids about personal finance at an early age, starting with the allowance, you know, and then going on up. Now, having said that, uh, just because you give someone the opportunity to learn doesn't mean that they will. So it's not going to be a foolproof system. I know I took trigonometry in high school. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, you know, some people are going to soak it up, some kids will soak it up, and others will be daydreaming during that class. So, um, you know, it's important to offer it, though, because even if, you know, uh, a certain portion soak it up and learn about finance, that makes it worth it. So, you know, starting in the family and in high school and college, too, that's, that's what I think. I'm I'm with Beverly here and you know I do I do have to say before we get into this that I was a recorder prodigy and <laughs> none of those classes were wasted people would pay hundreds of dollars a ticket to hear me play Mary Had a Little Lamb wow. so we may have to change the yeah. intro music to the to this podcast and we can get the recorder <laughs> No yeah oh gosh I mean <laughs> financial literacy is probably one of the more important skills you can learn um there's actually a lot of debate around the best way and method and time to teach this. Um, some people say that financial literacy doesn't really work and that we should be talking about regulation. Other people say instead of teaching, you know, home buying skills in high school, you should be teaching it uh, in what's called just in time education. So before somebody buys a house, you know, in the months leading up, you teach them about mortgages, interest rates, PMI, all of those topics. So I think there is still a lot of question about when is the best time to learn it. The point is that you have to, at some point, um, sit down and really go over these concepts. And, you know, as we talked about before, I think the earlier, the better. If you're not lucky enough to have parents who are modeling good financial behavior and teaching you good financial skills, then try and get into a class in high school. Maybe there's a financial literacy club uh, you can join, really try and get those skills as early as possible. And, you know, it's unfortunate sometimes that we have to kind of seek this out on our own, but um, that might be the best case scenario if there isn't sort of a, an option that uh, is just sort of programmed in. 
Mark Senadella, founder and CEO of Ladders, Inc., on how to answer the most common interview question. So I want to get into some of these most common interview questions. And the one I think people have a lot of trouble with is I think one of the most common, and that's just tell me about yourself. I think people spend either too little time on this or way too much time talking about their experience starting out as a five-year-old and then through elementary school and through high school. How do you suggest answering this very, very common, oftentimes the first question you'll be asked in an interview? Yeah, again, the, the goal of an interview is to get a job offer. Uh, you can decide later whether you want to take it or not, but your goal is to get an offer. Uh, if you think about it that way, you've got 30 or 45 or 60 minutes in which to persuade whoever you're speaking with that they ought to make you an offer. So uh, to a certain extent, the questions that they ask are uh, only relevant to you to the extent that they help you get an offer. You know, if you ever watch... Um, the stars, the celebrities go around on TV when they're doing a new book or a new movie or a new show, you'll find that they've got kind of this set group of answers that they answer every time about how do they feel about doing it. You know, Lady Gaga got made fun of a little bit for this uh, at the Grammys, um, talking about A Star is Born. If there are 100 people in a room and 99 don't believe in you, but one does, that's enough. And she said it over and over and over and over again. And Lady Gaga is very talented creative person, it's not that she couldn't think of different answers, it's that she and her team decided that was the right answer for whatever reason. Same thing for you. Uh, you want to think through what are the right answers that you want to give. And so what you start with is, what are the three most important things in the role? And then how do you fit into those three most important things for the role? So when they ask you, tell, tell me about yourself, you say, I'm excited to be here because I understand what you're looking for in this role is... A, B, and C, and I got to I got to tell you, I believe that uh, I bring a lot to the table in terms of D, E, and F that directly address those. And I would love to spend the next thirty or forty-five minutes with you talking about how those match up. That is the right way to answer the "tell me about yourself" question. U.S. News senior investing reporter John Devine discussing the risks and rewards that come with investing in cryptocurrencies. What type of investor should look at cryptocurrency now, in your opinion? Um, I think you should be uh, have a lot of risk tolerance. Um, realize that it is pretty speculative, and you should be in it for the long term. And there's nothing wrong with uh, a long-term investor wanting to devote a small amount, percentage of their portfolio to some of these higher risk reward investments. Um, and... You just have to uh, understand what you're getting into and, you know, preferably if you're in it for the long term and don't aren't a huge, you know, techno nerd, uh, tech nerd, not techno nerd. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you could be a techno nerd, but... Um, it's a separate episode. Yes, yes. Not a huge tech nerd, then you should stick to the, the quote, blue chip cryptos, unquote. So, so the cryptos with the highest uh, market cap, the largest volume... Um, those are the safest ones, clearly. Um, and then, you know, you're going to have day traders and stuff like that that will uh, trade the smaller ones and, and be much more speculative with it. But and Can you talk a little bit more about the risks versus the rewards for yeah, crypto investing? Obviously, as I mentioned before, it's, it's not like uh, a stock where you have fundamentals behind the stock and you can, there are different ways of, of valuing it. Um, 
there's really no hard way to value what a coin is worth. So the primary risk is, is the price fluctuation. And then there is a small risk in uh, where you store your crypto because uh, there have been big security breaches in the past that were nightmares. Uh, there's the famous Mt. Gox uh, fiasco, which was an exchange, the largest Bitcoin exchange at the time. Uh, and it was hacked a number of years ago and a bunch of thousands of uh, Bitcoin disappeared, which is, became worth more and more as time went on. And uh, customers who thought that they had their own individual wallets um, were actually pooling um, their their Bitcoin and, and Mt. Gox's wallet. Um, I think that's a simple way of putting it. But um, So I would recommend having somebody who really knows what they're doing in terms of how to store it uh, if you're going to get into this. One of the rewards, of course, though, is also the price. I mean, <laughs> um, and with Bitcoin in, in particular, that's alluring because uh, there are only a certain number of them that can ever be created, and most of them already have been uh, created. There's about 17.5 million in circulation right now, uh, and the final level uh, will be around 21 million. There will never be more than that in existence, and so it creates scarcity, and if you ascribe value to, to this, um, then it's going to get you know more and more valuable over time as long as that value doesn't change. So that's a way of thinking of it as a commodity or uh, asset rather than a currency, strictly speaking. And you sort of have to do that as an investor. You, you sort of have to take that perspective of it as being similar to gold or something if you want to, yeah, just be philosophically consistent in how you're thinking about this. Financial expert and author of The Latte Factor, David Bach, on keeping your saving habits in check as you grow your income. One of the overarching points I think that you make in the book is that earnings and spending work in tandem, and that the more people earn, the more they tend to immediately spend that, that extra earning, that extra income. In your book you write, earnings are like the tide and your spending is like a boat. Uh, I absolutely love that. Why do you think it's so difficult for consumers to manage spending when their earnings go up? Oh, well, first of all, let me ask you guys something. Do, does that sound true to you, what I said? Do you know people who have made more money and spent more money? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Lifestyle <laughs> inflation. <laughs> because, because I did, right? Like, I got out of college and thought if I made $50,000 a year, I would be rich. Until I made $50,000 a year, and then I spent sixty. <laughs> Then I thought if I make $75,000 a year, then I'll save money. And then I made 75 and spent 85. Then I thought if I make 100, that's the secret. If I can make 100,000 a year in my 20s, then I'll save money. And I still wasn't. <laughs> and so I, I was somebody who experienced lifestyle creep until I met this couple that is, a, is the, called Jim and Sue McIntyre in the Automatic Millionaire book. I met this couple. I'm working at Morgan Stanley. I have a beautiful leased Jaguar convertible. I have a beautiful apartment. It's rented. I have a Rolex watch and I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And in walks this couple who's, you know, 52 years old, ordinary income, never made more than $55,000 a year and comes into my office able to retire. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm doing, what did, what did you guys do to get here? 
And, and, you know, and they're your classic millionaire next door. And there's a millionaire next door. We call her the millionaire down the hallway in this book. Um, but not everybody spends, increases their spending when they grow their income. I, I didn't realize that when I was young. Like a lot of people <laughs> grow their income and they don't grow their expenses. They actually keep the extra money. I mean, the amazing thing is if you got a bonus and you always took that bonus and just actually saved it, it wouldn't take you 40 years to retire. You could retire by the time you're in your 50s. There are a lot of millennials right now who want to retire in 20 years. There, there, there's a whole movement called FIRE of people who want to have financial independence retire early. And they're, they're not even thinking about it. Like, to them, saving $5 or $10 a day is ridiculous. <laughs> they're, they're trying to figure out how to save 20, 30, 40 50% of their income. And the amazing thing is there are people doing it. I've met them. I've met these, these incredible souls that were like, I couldn't save any money and then I made a radical change in my life and I decided that freedom was more important than stuff. And the reason we grow our expenses and we make more money is marketing. We're marketed to, to spend more money. We've been led to believe through marketing that targets us. Market, today, marketing is more sophisticated than it's ever been. It's not just a, an ad running through a television show. Today, the advertisers literally know as you grow your income, they know how to target you with the next ad that you, you should see to buy something that now you can afford. Mm -hmm. So marketing is designed to separate you from your income. And marketers are more sophisticated at taking our money than we are at keeping our money. U.S. News Managing Editor of Education, Anita Narayan, on overlooked ways to pay for a college education. Okay, now, so with everything that we've addressed so far, are there any overlooked ways to pay for college? I mean, you already spoke about the importance of the FAFSA for everyone, not just, not just certain, certain students. Are there any other hidden options that we haven't really touched on yet? Yeah, and as you said, you know, there's a FAFSA. I know I've also talked about applying for scholarships. Um, I've talked about appealing financial aid award packages because honestly, those are also things that people overlook when it comes to paying for college. Um, two others that I, I should mention are um, starting a 529 plan. It does amaze me in all the years of covering education how there's these reports that come out every year um, about the number of families that have no clue what a 529 plan is. These are tax-advantaged um, college savings plans. So particularly if you have young kids, you can start saving and those savings will accrue over time. It's still worth opening um, even if your kid is in high school. You know, it's better, better mm -hmm. late than never, right? So that's one overlooked way that we haven't talked about yet. And then another one is um, when it comes to student loans, um, you know, which is a controversial topic. Um, but really the, the good advice here is to exhaust your federal student loan options. You know, before you consider taking out private student loans, make sure you're, you're researching federal loans because these offer um, better borrower protections. Um, they often have more flexible repayment options when it comes to that, when the, the student has graduated. So that's another thing to think about. Um, you know, I think folks maybe dive in with private student loans that you do have the, the federal options that you really want to exhaust, take out. If you have made that decision to take out student loans, make sure you're kind of maximizing the, the federal options first. That thing you mentioned about the 529 plan is so important. I think what you, a lot of parents will look at, well, my kid's 10, 12, 14 years old. There's no reason for me to set up a 529 at this point because it's not going to grow nearly enough, but it can take a significant dent out of, out of the expense of, mm -hmm. of paying for college. Yep. 
Douglas Bonaparte, Certified Financial Planner and President of Bonafide Wealth, on working with a financial advisor through changing markets. I want to talk a little bit about measuring success with a financial advisor, which we've sort of circled a little bit already, but how should an individual use metrics to determine how they're doing versus the bigger picture of how the market is performing, right? Like things are good, I want to be doing well too. Things are bad, I want to be doing well, you know, anyway. Uh, how do yeah. you have these conversations with, with your clients about how to look at the big picture? Absolutely. And this is, this is really where financial planning is key. You know, if you're if you're just looking at, you know, how much your account went up or down, you know, in any particular, you know, day, hopefully not near like <laughs> month or, or year, um, you know, you don't really have context. You know, context is everything and the financial plan provides that. It's it's really your, you know, barometer for how well you're doing compared to what your goals, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to accomplish goals. So that's what you're comparing to, not necessarily how the S&P 500 did or a particular index did. How are you doing relative to your goals? Because if you achieve your goals, do, do you really care what anyone else is doing? See, I think that's that's fundamental understanding here is that you got to put your blinders on. You know, we call it personal finance for a reason. It's personal. You know, you're playing a game with yourself, you know, with your own emotions, your own goals, your own lives, and obviously your family and significant other is all part of this too. Um, but, you know, it it, it is – when you think about so so let's just back up for a second because it is important to say that you, you can't like be underperforming significantly the market you know right you just you just can't you know part of my life you can't suck at this right you actually uh, you actually need to earn a return but again that's it's not only relative to your goals but depending on how you're investing you know there there should be an expectation set for what your return should be and and again that's in the financial plan that's in the retirement planning section or the goal section where it shows you hey this this is what we're trying to achieve um, and then there's the actual performance. So for me personally, um, I don't believe you can beat the market consistently. It's really a function of how much risk are you willing to take to get um, your share of the market's like returns. So um, that's basically a big ploy for index investing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or what we call passive investing. But again, we, we, we can put together those portfolios and get, you know, using historical data and expectation for what our allocation or investment should get us relative to our goals. Like if your retirement plan says, "Hey, we're trying to get five point, you know, five five percent, you know, long term," um, we can look at portfolios that historically over the long term get that, and reasonably so, right? Not trying to do like, uh, you know, a Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey twelve percent rate of return, you know, thing here, which is preposterous, like absolutely asinine. But um, you know, you can you can look for more meaningful uh, returns like that that again plug into the goals you're trying to achieve. Jerry Detweiler, Education Director for NAV and Small Business and Credit Expert, on how to get started turning your idea into a business. So as we get into it now, I want to talk about, first and foremost, turning ideas into businesses and the difference between an idea and a business. I think so many dreaming entrepreneurs have big ideas that will make them rich and famous, and they don't have any plan for it besides sort of, you know... I just need to get started, uh, basically. So how can someone turn an idea into a business in a smart way where they don't destroy their savings, they don't destroy their credit, or both, frankly? You're exactly right. A lot of people think I have this great idea, and a lot of times they're very protective of the idea. They're so 
afraid to bring it to market because they're afraid someone's going to steal the idea that they invest all this time and money and then discover, hey, no one really wants to pay for that. So the very <laughs> first thing you want to do is you want to find a customer who will pay you money for whatever it is you're offering, whether it's a product or service. And this is, you know, your friends, uh, family, they may say, that's a great idea. I love it. But until someone's willing to put up cold, hard cash, you don't know whether you have a business. The great thing is that you can do this now. This is the best time ever to start a small business because you can do this now on such a great, um, with testing with such a, a low marketing cost initially, you could create a Facebook page and test some Facebook advertising, for example. Same with any kind of online advertising. You can reach people so inexpensively now in a way that wasn't possible even five or 10 years ago. So I think that's the very first thing you want to do. And then the second thing you want to do, or maybe you're doing this simultaneously, is I would really encourage anyone who wants to start a small business to get a mentor. There's very clear research around the fact that small businesses that work with mentors are more profitable, they're more profitable more quickly, they're more likely to stay around longer, and you can do this very easily through uh, free resources that are funded through our taxpayer dollars uh, through the Small Business Administration. So if you go to sba.gov tools, you're going to see right there a locator tool, and it helps you locate a local resource in your community that can help you start your small business. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it. And if you have financial advice questions you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few when we pick back up in the fall. Finally, if you'd like to read up on financial advice, check out money.usnews.com where we have a wide range of information on personal finance, careers, real estate, investing, and more. I'm Antonio Barbera. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. See you next time.